Welcome to Wealthy Behavior, talking money and wealth with Heritage Financial, the podcast that digs into the topics, strategies, and behaviors that help busy and successful people build and protect their personal wealth. I'm your host, Sammy Azuz, the president and CEO of Heritage Financial, a Boston-based wealth management firm working with high net worth families across the country for longer than 25 years. Now let's talk about the wealthy behaviors that are key to a rich life. On this episode of the podcast, we have a special guest, Caleb Silver, the editor-in-chief of Investopedia and host of the Investopedia Express podcast. He's an Emmy-nominated business journal who previously worked as the director of business news at CNN, the executive producer of CNN Money, and a senior producer at Bloomberg TV. He's also a frequent guest at CNBC, MSNBC, CNN, and ABC News Radio. Welcome to Wealthy Behavior, Caleb. So good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. So, I've been thrilled to have this conversation. Investopedia is probably one of the most useful sites for investment information and education out there. I, I cite to it constantly in my content. How would you explain what it is to our listeners and what they can get out of that platform? Yeah. First of all, we're about to be 25 years old this summer. So we are oh, wow. a dinosaur of the internet. <laughs> 25 years on the internet, that's like 250 real years. We have been uh, educating people about money since 1999 in one form or the other. Heavy on the investing side, heavy on the wealth building side, but the site has really grown to where we have something like 45,000 articles, 15,000 definitions and terms that answer people's questions about money. A lot of that is terms, what is EBITDA, uh, what does compounding mean, but also frequently asked questions that help people make decisions with their money. Roth IRA, 401k, how do I invest $10,000? What's the difference between a this or a that? How does upcoming legislation or taxes impact me? So we answer people's questions about money. And a lot of that is, you know, people coming to us through search with a question and then learning and then taking action. Yeah. And that's uh, great because it leads to my next question. A lot of times if you're searching for something, you're, you're, you're pushed to Investopedia because you guys have a great web presence. Once people are on there, where would you like them to spend more time maybe getting to learn things outside of their you know basic inquiry? It's a fascinating question, something we think about all the time because everybody comes to us with an individual question. We call it personal finance for a reason, right, Sammy? It's mm -hmm. personal to all of us. So yep. again, that question of Roth IRA 401k or 529 or another vehicle to save for my kids' education. Everybody comes with a unique question, but there's always a question behind the question, right? If somebody is saying, how do I invest $10,000? Clearly they're in either coming into money, either through some estate transfer, or they've gotten a raise, or they have some sort of a windfall. So what's your actual question? Where are you in your life that you are asking this question? We want to help them take them further down the path so they can actually get to the decision-making that they really came to us for initially. They want to learn first, then take action. So that's the path. And that's kind of the way we set up our content. If you if you come to Investopedia because you're searching for a term, you're going to find that term, a definition for that, a good example, maybe a chart, maybe a video. But you're also going to find it inside a journey of other questions that you're probably thinking about for the original reason you came to us. That's the way we operate. That's kind of the way we've been operating really for the last decade or so. Oh, wow. So what does the editor-in-chief do and how did you get to that role? Yeah, great question. I, I have a unique and an outstanding role in the world of business journalism and financial education. So um, unlike a lot of other publications, I don't run all of our editors. We got about 15 editors and writers, staff writers and, and folks like that. I did that at one point. Their job, and they're run by our editorial directors, is to really make sure that we are answering people's questions 
the best we possibly can across all those 40,000 documents. Plus, we have a whole news team that does news for the educated investor. Right? We're not trying to, to, to beat uh, Bloomberg or Reuters at their game, but we're trying to write news for the person who's thinking about what to do next. So my job as the editor-in-chief is to kind of highlight what the Investopedia brand is all about. I'm out there. You mentioned I'm on TV a lot. Um, I'm on, uh, the, you know, I have my own podcast. I'm on your podcast. I'm on the speaking circuit at industry conferences. We're running surveys of our investors, of our readers to, to get a sense of how they're feeling. And I'm taking that intelligence, the pulse of the individual investor and the consumer out to the media and also creating content around that here in Investopedia that brings people to us for other reasons, not the re the search reasons, but, oh, I didn't know that, or this is new and this is valuable information. That's kind of my job. Make us famous, keep the brand out there as the beacon for investing education. And it's an amazing job because I get to go out there and, and help people uh, make decisions and learn more about their money. Yeah. And I know through our conversations and just following you, you're very passionate about financial literacy, right? This idea that people should have various financial skills, to use them and you know over time continue to build upon them because financial education is really the key to money success. Yeah, absolutely. We we believe financial literacy and education should not just be something you can electively take or you might get in in high school or maybe you look at an online course. We believe it's a right, a fundamental right. People need to learn about money. And guess what? We don't teach it enough, especially to younger people, especially to underserved, underserved communities. And we're trying to change that. That's kind of what we've been about for a long time. But in the last few years, I've really moved us in the direction, really help financial literacy efforts and education efforts in high school, public high schools across the country, and also elementary schools. We feel like you're never too young to learn about it. Now, we're not teaching people options trading when they're in the ninth <laughs> grade. We're teaching people how to build wealth, how money actually works. So we joined the Jumpstart Coalition, uh, which is sort of the hub for financial literacy for public schools. We developed our own free curriculum that's being used by public schools across the country. I go to schools uh, throughout the country and I speak to classrooms and I train teachers and we work with other nonprofit organizations that are helping this effort to, to strengthen their curriculum. So we want to be a beacon of financial literacy and education for all, but we want to start young because we don't feel like that's being taught enough. And guess what? You know this very well. You go to college, you take on some student debt, or you get out of college and you get your first job. You cannot cover your expenses, but nobody ever taught you how to balance your budget, how to make your money work for you. We, they taught us calculus. They taught us trigonometry. Not saying not not valuable, but the life lessons you learn by understanding the way money works will last you a lifetime and help you grow comfortably into your money. Like I said, you're very passionate about the topic, and it's a really important one. Are there building blocks of financial literacy, almost like a Maslow's hierarchy of needs when it comes to this topic, that there are just certain things you have to take the time to learn and be good at, regardless of your, your general interest level? And, and what are those? If yeah, well, if you want to start super young, it's needs versus wants. And every good curriculum teaches this. You know, what do you want? What do you need? But there's also understanding the way that uh, money works, the way compounding works, right? In both directions. Like, what does compound interest mean on your credit card? What does compounding mean in your portfolio? How does money grow over time? But also, um, and this is a very fundamental thing that financial advisors like you are great at. And I steal this from Joe McLean, a, a terrific advisor. Um, I, who I think we both know, which is what does it cost to be you? And then what does it cost to be the you you want to be? Rarely do we break that down. We do that when we sit with terrific financial advisors like you and mine, 
we have that conversation, but that's only a few of us who have that access to uh, professional financial planning. But just that fundamental question is super important. Also, the difference between being a consumer and being an owner. And I speak to a lot of high schools, and I don't know if you've ever sat and spoke to a, a, a room of 17 or 16-year-olds who really could care less about people like me. But when you start talking to them about the products they own, what they wear, what's on their phone, what's on their feet, uh, what's a, who's on the hoodie, and then under, ba- breaking it down to them that you don't just have to be a consumer here. We're saving up for that money. You can own a piece of that company. And what does it mean? And how to evaluate um, you know, equity ownership and how to build your own portfolio so you're not just a spender, you're an investor, you're a part of the, of the uh, process. And moving up the chains, maybe what are uh, or the chain? What are the things that you wish outside of those essentials that people would take the time to learn? Yeah, good credit, bad credit, right? I mean, okay. you know, people end up getting in, into these debt spirals because they don't understand how credit actually works, but also how to make credit work for you. Now, you and I know a lot of successful investors that have built in amazing careers on that and fortunes, but if we don't learn that early, then we start going the other way too fast. So the understanding good credit, bad credit is super important for that, but also, you know, where is your money and how is your money working for you? We work hard to make our money and pay our bills. And we always hear about these studies about people, you know, living paycheck to paycheck. Well, what's what's your paycheck going towards, right? How is the extra money you're making working for you so that eventually when you stop working, your money's growing? Like we don't really get to that enough and young enough. And I think that's a key lesson that helps people sort of build financial uh, wealth and well-being over time. And maybe there isn't an answer to this question, just given your platform and and what the information you're trying to share. But at the top of this kind of hierarchy of financial literacy, are there topics that you think, unless you're really passionate about this, maybe you don't need to take the time to grind away and, and learn some of these things if you've got the other stuff under your belt? Yeah, I mean, you know, you can go very deep into the black belt territory of intermarket analysis and, again, options and derivatives tra- uh, trading um, and, you know, building a really diverse portfolio with all kinds of different asset classes. You can do all of that, you know, if you have the sophistication and the education and the wherewithal, but the basic building blocks of having a, uh, you know, retirement portfolio, having savings and how your savings actually works, where your other assets are. That's where you need to be to understand really what it costs, again, to be you and the you you want to be. If you have a family and you want to eventually buy a home or eventually, you know, take care of your kids or, or, or older parents, how much is all of that actually going to cost you? That's the stuff we need right now. But also how money grows over time. Um, that lesson, once you learn that, once that light bulb goes off, I don't care if you're 14 or 44 or 64, it changes everything. When you're talking to folks at, at all levels about this uh, stuff, what are they the most resistant to? And maybe what's the most eye-opening to them that um, you had to bring to their attention? Well, I think a lot of people, especially people who have jobs and companies that have 401ks, I have this conversation all the time with people. And it always surprises me when I say to them, they say, I have a 401k and I'm contributing to it. I'm getting the match. Fabulous. That's what we want to hear. How are you allocated inside your portfolio? And they look at me like I'm crazy. I'm like, no, 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 you have to make decisions inside that 401k so that it's actually aligned with your goals. And that's just a basic one that I come across all the time. But I come across that with, uh, you know, people who are in their 20s and 30s 
who just look at me like I'm from another planet. And I also come across it with people who are very young who are just starting to invest. The, the idea of asset allocation, portfolio allocation, where is it and where do you want to be given your age and your goals? That's super important for folks. Also, I do I do this all the time. Uh, you know, People want to show me their portfolios. Uh, hey, look at my portfolio. I own these stocks. I own all these 44 stocks. And I say, great. What is your you know, your average share price, how much of a position have you been building over time? And they go, no, 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 I just bought these and I think they're good. And I say, hey, buying one or two shares or something is all right. But the way to really build wealth in a portfolio over time is to build positions and dollar cost average your way in, right? So that you have accumulated a sizable position so that if it does make the move you want to make, you're actually earning real money on that or money that you can, you know, convert it if you eventually sell it. So that whole idea of I own a lot, but I don't understand how it works comes up all the time and these are just basics now there's the very complicated stuff you know of insurance and you know tax advantageous investing and being an efficient investor that's for being you know, a little bit more complicated but just those basics i mean i hear those all the time they're investing but they're not really investing is Correct. what you're saying yeah okay where do you put staying informed in this financial literacy framework and and how would you encourage people to most efficiently stay informed just given all the resources that are available out there right now well, there's tremendous newsletters. There's people like you putting out great content all the time. Um, you know, social media for all of its ills is actually a great place for financial literacy if you're following the right people. And I'm not talking about TikTok and people telling you how to to live that life. I'm talking about people that are delivering, you know, classic, you know, good investing and financial education. You can find them if you look in the right places. So um, I I have been doing this a very long time. So I'm subscribed to a lot of um uh, newsletters of people that I uh, really admire who have been very consistent over time, but also the very basics. You know, some of the old investing books are still really important today. A Random Walk Down Wall Street. I interviewed Burton Malkiel not too long ago. That book still resonates really well. Um, the Intelligent Investor, you know, to take it all the way back. That actually still makes sense over time. But if you want to follow people today who are, you know, speaking your language and are, and are having those... Uh, the types of conversations you need, well, you're a great place to start, but also your colleagues and people in the Investopedia 100 are listed the most influential financial advisors. All of them have YouTube channels for podcasts, and they are giving you the good stuff. Absolutely. So I was going to ask you your favorite personal finance books or resources, and you you went off with a couple. So I'd, I'd like to wrap that question up. Are there any other books? Because uh, we get a lot of book recommendation questions, you know, for my kid, uh, for my spouse who wants to learn about it, for uh, you know my grandkid, for me personally, what are some of the best books you would recommend? The, the Richest Man in Babylon is is a classic and it never gets old. I really learned a lot from that, and I reread it. It's a good listen too if you if you're that type of person. Just the the audio read on that is great. Um, always keep buying or just keep buying Nick Majuli uh, from the Ritholtz Wealth Group. That's a really terrific book that just explains how compounding works over time. I really come back to that. Uh, very frequently. My buddy, Farnoosh Turabi, uh, uh, who's the, uh, behind the So Money podcast, has a new book out on fear, because finance and fear kind of go hand in hand and how to conquer that. I suggest people check that out. So those are a few new ones that I like uh, right now. But you know, also some of the people that have been in this industry a long time, like Christine Benz at Morningstar, we're retirement experts. She's such a good writer, uh, writes so clean. She's got a new book coming out that I think people should check out as well. These are the people that have been doing this and studying this industry a long time. So it's not just road advice or talk show advice. It is practical, tactical advice for people who want to live with their money successfully over time. 
Definitely, I'm looking forward to uh, talking to Christine about her book on the podcast. She's very generous. I'm going to get her first, Sammy. No, All just... right. No, no problem. I'm sure you will. No problem about that. But she's very generous with her time and she's is so living, and, living and breathing personal finance. Um, so on that topic of the podcast, you, ho- you host a weekly podcast, the Investopedia Express. It digs into important topics with great guests. I've learned a lot hosting our podcast and getting to talk to some really interesting people. What are some of the top things you learned last year hosting the Express? Yeah, that's probably my favorite thing to do because of that reason. Uh, I have a lot of fun with it also, but it is an opportunity for me to talk to the people who I really admire in the industry who have a great voice. So, um, you know, I've had some really interesting guests on the pod. One I had at the end of last year, who's very popular on social media, uh, your rich BFF, Vivian too, um, young woman who used to work on Wall Street during the pandemic, started her own podcasting YouTube channel, uh, just sort of like practical money hacks. But really what what I think she's really good at, and she said this, and I, I've been doing this a very long time, but she put the investing equation and the and the the reason to invest in in some of the great best contacts that I've heard and folks can listen to her on my pod or go follow her. But she said, "Look, you you think of you know your life in two pie charts. One is your work, your labor equity, and the other is your money, your financial equity. And when you're young and through most of your career, you're building up your labor equity to make money. But over time, you want that other pie, which is your financial equity, to grow. So you have to invest the money you make through your labor and have that work for you so you don't have to keep working forever. And just that notion of get that wheel spinning and then start this other wheel so that other wheel eventually takes over so you don't have to work forever. That was just a really clean way of of explaining it. And and I love uh, the way she did that. She's just one person that pops to mind, but I'm lucky. I get access to a lot of really interesting folks. And even in folks that are just not down the line in investing, I do, I do a thing with wine investing. I love mm-hmm. wine. I get invited to uh, the food and wine Aspen classic. And I interview people about how to invest in, in wine and what it actually means, or uh, just did a, an episode on real estate because the real estate market is something I get asked about all the time. We're Investopedia, but so many people have questions about real estate that I, I'm, I'm talking to experts about that. Um, so that always helps me out a lot as well. And then some of the folks that I just follow who I get to talk to on a regular basis, whether it's like a Liz Young at SoFi or or a, a Ryan Dietrich at the Carson Group, they have such good market anecdotes and ways of explaining the dynamics of the stock market and investing that always ring bells for me. And I love having them on. And at the end of every show, because Investopedia is a site built on our financial terms, I ask all of our guests for their favorite financial term, like which is the one that just makes them, you know, smile or means the most to them. And I have, you know, a collection out of 173 of, of the best fi- favorite financial terms from some of the smartest people in the world. That's always good. What's your favorite financial term? Well, I, it varies and it depends on that on what's going on in the world. But I like contango just because it's funny and it sounds like a, a something you might dance to in Buenos Aires. You know, compounding is a classic, and I put that on the back of my uh, on the back of my uh, hoodie just because compounding is that magic fairy dust that is sprinkled over the stock market and in investing that doesn't allow your money to double and grow over time. I love compounding. Who doesn't? Uh, so those are just some of my favorites. Do you have a dream podcast guest? Hmm. Great question. I mean, I've been lucky enough to interview folks like Jack Bogle before he passed. And, you know, I'd love to have uh, Warren Buffett, who wouldn't on their pod, but I've I've actually been able to interview him a couple of times in my career, not in this capacity. Um, so, you know, there are people like that I like to talk to. But, you know, one of my favorite guests was not even a classic investor. It was Eli Manning. And I'm not even a Giants fan. 
But why? He's a successful athlete, obviously, and a personality, a sports personality, but he is an investor and he's learning about it. So talking to him about how he learned his investing journey uh, was super important to me. I'm a huge hip hop head uh, and I love people that have made it in that uh, industry, not just as artists, but as as business people. So Jay-Z would be on the top of that list because he's not a businessman. He's a business man. Um and talking about how to really build empires like that, I'm fascinated with 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 folks like that, and I'm a huge fan. So I probably venture outside of the investing world um, for uh, another layer of guests on that top shelf who I would love to talk to. Yeah, those would be interesting conversations for sure. So you're out and about. You're talking to a lot of people. Uh, I'm sure you've uh, over the years, particularly the last few years, gotten questions about crypto, uh, which I can see potentially being challenging to a financial literacy guy is people taking maybe their first steps into investing in what what is a complicated topic that you know may or may not pan out that's just my editorial opinion how do you talk to people about dabbling or investing in crypto yeah it is such a hot topic um especially over the last few years for good reason i mean if you look at the performance the return of asset classes and i put that in air quotes there's nothing like Bitcoin. We've never seen anything like it. So people are fascinated with it. But understanding how it actually works and what Bitcoin is and what cryptography is and you know, understanding the ecosystem of the blockchain and digital currency is the very first step. Like, Why in the world would we want to even invest in something like this? How is it going to work? But more importantly, where is it going? And Rick Edelman, uh, one of my favorite guests on the pod and a good friend of mine, uh, who started the Digital Assets Council for Financial Professionals and obviously had a huge career in mutual funds. He explains it well when you're talking about blockchain being you know, the highway that uh, this is all built on the infrastructure, but then the fast cars, the cars on that highway are the coins, like a Bitcoin, like an Ether um, and others. Then you start to understand the way that this actually works and really understanding what gives it value, if anything, besides the greater fool theory. Right, which is well, it's only worth what the next person is willing to pay for it. Well, in Bitcoin and in other asset and other crypto uh, coins, that's really the uh, the premise. It's like there's some technical analysis, but you have to understand this is only as valuable as the next person's going to pay for it. You can't look at it like a stock. You can't look at it like a piece of real estate or a commodity. So, making sure people understand the mechanism. Now, I'm fascinated with it myself. Now, I have a little portion of my portfolio, and I'm talking about one or two percent at most in Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Why? Because I want to understand it, right? I want to make money from it. I want returns, but I'm not willing to risk any more than that until I have a much better understanding. And I see that it has a better uh, toehold in our financial industry. But you and I know this has been uh, really unfolding over the past decade. When Fidelity and Schwab and others are willing to custodian your, your cryptocurrency is a mainstream asset. So having a little bit of it, but learning as you buy is the way to go but I wouldn't extend yourself if you're a, if you're a uh, you know you're new to this game. Make sure you have a much stronger foundational investment portfolio before you start messing around with digital currencies. To me, there's just a paradox to Bitcoin that I can't get past as a potential investment, and the 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 idea that the value will be unlocked as it becomes adopted more and more as a currency. But then the owners of it who are waiting for that to happen will never use it as a currency because they're hoping to sell it for more in the future. So if the underlying thesis isn't even being utilized by the people who own it, it I don't know, it just kind of gets my mind twisted. It'll break your brain. Absolutely. <laughs> but they, this is how I think of it. And this is why I convinced myself that I wanted to own it, besides the fact that I want to own it to understand it, is that 
do I think Bitcoin will be here in 10 years? And the answer to me is yes. Do I know in what capacity it will be here? No, but I do understand the way that the blockchain is going to be very valuable for a ton of industries and is already very valuable right now. And if Bitcoin is one of those those cars or those tokens that is a, a part of that ecosystem, then I think it has a place in the financial world, then it will have some value. Is it 43000 Is it 83000 Is it $15? I have no idea. I want to own it at various prices, though, and just see what happens to it. And, you know, if, if it doesn't work out, then I really haven't risked that much. Since you're living and breathing this stuff, I have to ask you, where do you think we are right now in the economy and the market? Yeah, I, I mean, we're in a tricky place because, you know, the, the stock market, as you know, is always way ahead of the economy. They are not the same thing. Sometimes they show up at the same barbecue, but they are not the same. And investors in the stock market are way ahead of it. So valuations are high again. The stock market, even though it's at all-time highs, is as narrow as it's been since, dare I say, 1998, 1999. We know what happened after that. It's also as narrow as it was, you know, in the uh, in the in the 70s. So we know what happened after that. When the stock market gets really narrow with this narrow leadership, you got to wonder uh, how healthy it actually is. But I also, you know, you can wonder and not be invested and watch all time highs after all time highs. I know they come in clusters, right? And all time highs usually we get more all time highs unless something happens. And, and takes it off course. So I'm in this game for a long time. I'm 53. I'm going to be invested another 25 years easy, right? So I'm willing to take whatever comes our way. And I do think the economy is stronger than we all thought it would be at this point in time. So let's put that over there for a second. And I think it's changing dynamically. Obviously, we see this kind of bifurcated economy. There's strong jobs growth. Uh, we're still gaining jobs, 680,000 in just the past two months. But at the same time, the biggest companies with you know, the highest stock prices are laying off hundreds or thousands of people to improve their profit margins. Is that sustainable over time? I don't know. Um, but can't deny the fact that it's stronger than it was. And the stock market at all time highs is not a reason for me to start selling stocks. Like that's a behavior that I think a lot of investors get in. Oh, it's at all time highs. I don't want to go near it. Okay. Why is it at all time highs? Or, you know, we've just crashed 20%. I'm not going near it. Stock market's the one store people run out of when everything goes on sale. So I just try to be a consistent investor. And I think we're going to have a good year, not a great year, because that's that's what usually happens, right? Good years follow great years. Last year was a great year. And we're kind of normalizing a little bit as an economy. So I expect, you know, not 10, 15% stock market returns over the next three to four years. I think it's a more muted return environment, but I'm I'm here for that. What's most interesting to you in this environment that you're watching that you think investors should be paying attention to? Well, obviously consumer spending, because we spend like it's our job in this country. We're really, really good at it. But as you know, and your listeners probably know, consumer spending 70% of GDP, we're spending ourselves into record debt. Credit card debt is at a record high. Credit card debt per borrower is at a record high. Uh, interest rates aren't going down anytime soon. So that's terrifying. That said, we won't we can't stop, won't stop, but something might make us stop. I'm keeping a close eye on that. Uh, and we haven't seen delinquencies and, and bankruptcies at a level that we need to be really scared yet, but they are rising. I keep a close eye on that. But there's also some just weird indicators that I just keep an eye on. And I learn these from, from folks that I interview all the time. Jeff Kleintop over at Schwab talks about the cardboard indicator or the price of corrugated boxes. You know, I always look at the little things like that to, as, uh, as tea leaves. Uh, you know, just because they're curious. Uh, and sometimes they do foretell something that's coming up in the economy right now. 
But also we watch investor behavior really closely here. Not only do we see what people are looking at on a daily basis, we know what's trending, we know what people are fearful of, we know what they're opportunistic about. But when I see things that I'm seeing them now, people asking about uh, hardship loans or how to tap the 401k for a loan. Right now, I'm seeing I mean, this. You're seeing that because you can see the search queries at Investopedia, right? You can see the traffic. Yeah. Okay. 2024, yeah. you know, here we are. People are looking into and tapping their 401ks. That's not a healthy sign. So while we might be at all-time highs, and that's one sign of prosperity and the wealth effect, on the other side, and it's not everybody, some people are are not doing well at all. So that seesawing of, you know, the, the tale of two countries, the tale of two economies, the tale of two markets, uh, that keeps getting wider and wider. I keep a very close eye on that. Great. Um and I just wanted to thank you for your generosity today, uh, talking to our listeners, explaining uh, financial literacy concepts and uh, the you know investing dialogue that we have. And just thank you for all you do for the advisor community and investors uh, in general. We talked a little bit about it already, but where can people find you and Investopedia's content? Yeah, Investopedia.com. Like I said, we've been here for 25 years. We own the block. Um, we're all across all the socials at Investopedia. My podcast is the Investopedia Express comes out every Monday morning. We got to get you on there. Um, if you like uh, finance freestyle, I open the show with that. It's terrible, but my kids hate <laughs> it. But I can't stop, won't stop. Um, and then I'm, of course, at Caleb Silver across the socials. Super easy to find. Reach out anytime. We're huge fans of what you do, Sammy, and uh, and all the advisors out there who are really doing this type of work. We know you have your practice and it's successful and you help your clients, but I think you are like us and Patty Go in that you care about the financial education and literacy part of it. And you, it shows through what you're, uh, you're doing through all your work. Thank you. I appreciate that. We have a great team at Heritage Financial. And thanks again for being on the podcast with us today, Caleb. My pleasure. Take your wealth to the next level with how to build your next million. Our educational video series and ebook highlights the financial tools and strategies that will help you save more, keep more of what you earn, grow your portfolio, and protect your nest egg to enhance your overall wealth. Visit heritagefinancial.net to access these free resources. Thank you for listening to Wealthy Behavior. If you found the conversation useful, please leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and share this episode so those around you can live a rich life too. We appreciate your feedback and questions. Please email us at wealthybehavior@heritagefinancial.net. For more insights, subscribe to our weekly blog at heritagefinancial.net and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Check out my personal finance blog at thebostonadvisor.com. Wealthy Behavior is produced by Kristen Kastner and Michelle Kakinis. This educational podcast is brought to you by Heritage Financial Services, LLC, located in the greater Boston area. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are that of the speaker, are subject to change, and do not constitute investment advice or a recommendation regarding any specific product or security. There is no guarantee that any investment or strategy discussed will be successful or will achieve any particular level of results. Investing involves risks, including the potential loss of principal. There has not been and will not be any compensation exchanged between Heritage Financial Services and podcast guests or recommended resources.